Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 55 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 55 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I was going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songer slash producer. But I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks. Then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song. And then the second part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians on the track, um, what studio was recorded at, the labels released on, what where it was recorded and where the label it was uh the song release song was based at and uh what position it made up on the billboard hot 100 charts um that's basically the history behind uh the song and artists to talk about each week and all that is in the second part of the show now before we move on this week's episode of the podcast i want to make a quick disclaimer if my voice doesn't sound um as as enthusiastic or as high energy as it normally is um this morning i woke up with what would start to be kind of another sinus cold um i get these literally all the time you know i'm i have chronic uh post nasal drip so um you know so if my voice doesn't sound super chip chipper upbeat then that's the reason why all right so let's get to it all right so moving on let's talk about the history behind uh, last week's band and song, which is the Moody Blues and Go Now, because the main reason as to why I chose this band for this week's episode of my podcast is because I really do think of this band was one of the most interesting bands from the British Invasion, even though uh, you it may, they may not be your favorite band from the British Invasion, but really what made them so interesting? Good question. You see, on my show before i have talked about bands that have made an evolution in their sound in their genre and when i talked about the Bee Gees, for instance i went in depth with the group's earlier career and talked about how they sounded like a completely different band in the 60s versus the 70s but like most bands from this era they gradually changed their sound they didn't go from doing one completely different genre and one sound from their first album to their second album they took a lot of time to build a consistent brand and signature sound and then changed their sound over a period of time and made the transition from one genre to another over a series of albums. And groups like the Beatles and the Beach Boys did this as well. But this particular band, the Moody Blues, basically went from one completely different genre music from another completely different genre music, all from their debut album to their sophomore album. They basically went from being somewhat of a basic R&B cover band with not enough strong original material to being a psychedelic pop band with complex orchestral arrangements and exotic synthetic keyboard 
sounds laced with original songs written by the group's new frontman slash lead singer, with still retaining most of the original band minus one lead singer and bass player. But I will digress. The bands that made a gradual change with their sound and genre more or less kept the same people in the band throughout their transitional period, but this particular band went through a major personnel change in between their first two albums, and that did a lot to signal their sudden change with their sound and genre. But I really do believe that they also switched things up to go along with what was popular at that time, and to shift of and also the shift of what was considered in vogue with younger listeners. And with this, they also successfully made the transition from being just a pure singles AM radio band, with really one hit single to their name with that moniker, and to being an album FM radio oriented band, right when FM radio was starting to gain some momentum and popularity amongst young people in the 60s. Um, most people only pretty much know them for this period, I mean... They had a ton of hits in this period, and the AM radio period pretty much only had one hit. And But in this episode, I'm going to go in depth with exactly how the heck they were able to make such a drastic transition within genres, all within a two-year period, and how one member of the band would also later go on to do much bigger and better things the next decade after he left the Moody Blues shortly after their first hit. Okay, but first let's talk about how this band was formed, because while most British Invasion bands from this era formed in the early 60s, even before the Beatles even made it in America and were having hits in the years of 1963 and 62, this band didn't form until after the British Invasion was already full and swing in 1964. The original band members and the first incarnation of the band included Ray Thomas on flute and tambourine, Mike Pinder on keyboards, Graham Edge on drums, and Diane Lane on guitar and lead vocals. When the band first formed, it was Ray Thomas and Mike Pinder and a guy named John Lodge playing bass. And uh, John was in the band only for a short period of time. And you got to keep in mind, at this time, they weren't called uh, the Moody Blues. They were called El Riot and the Rebels. And John was only in this band for a short period of time in the beginning and left to to go to school and the group shortly then later disbanded after that. And then Mike Pinder also joined the army. Now, when Pinder got out of the army, he decided uh, that they wanted to reform the band and so they called themselves the Crew Caps after Pinder um, basically, uh, you know, left the army and, and uh, he was discharged. And at this time, uh, they recruited uh, lead singer Denny Lane and drummer Graham Edge. And uh, they approached their old bassist John Lodge if he would be interested in joining the band. But he turned down that position as the group's bass player because he was still in school at the time. Uh, so they recruited a guy named Clint Warwick to play bass in the band. And the new incarnation of this band decided to change their name from the Crew Cats to something a lot cooler and more relevant to what was happening in the 60s. And the band decided to call themselves the Moody Blues. Because the keyboard player Mike Pinder was fascinated by how music really changed people's moods. And how at the time, they were mainly playing blues-oriented songs and also R&B covers. This would sooner than later change, but this was just how the band was like at this moment. 
But anyways, in the early days of the band, the man who was primarily responsible for building up their career in the Moody Blues and getting them where they needed to be at as far as record sales and their initial first taste of fame was their, man, was their first manager slash producer named Alex Warden, who at the time was going under the name Alex Murray. Alex at the time was an A&R man for Decca Records, and it was through him that he was able to sign the band to their first recording contract with Decca Records. Now, at this time, they were signed to a label. The band had some heavy competition because the Rolling Stones and the Zombies were also on the same label at the time. And Decca was putting in most of their time and energy into marketing and promoting money into the Stones, who were promised to be their biggest selling band. And they actually would become their biggest selling band. So, because of this, other British bands signed to Decca were somewhat pushed aside, not given enough attention by the heads of A&R and production and promotion for that label at that time. And those bands included Them, The Zombies, The Fortunes, and a few other bands. But this didn't stop the band from having hits, because really once 1964 hit, there was room for any British band to have success in the U.S., and in the UK, too. So the opportunity was definitely there for them to make it. They just had to find the right material for them to get hits. Their first single on Decca bombed, but it was their second single that really set the groove off as far as fame was concerned. And while we're at it, let's talk about the history behind this song. Because some of you out there might assume that Go Now was an original song written by the group's lead singer slash guitar player and the group's keyboard player but in reality the song was not a song they wrote at all you see in the early days of the band like many of the british invasion bands from the 60s the moody blues took obscure african-american r&b songs and basically put their own spin on it and did their own versions of these songs and turned them into hits across the pond and in their home country as well i mean they basically you know took these really obscure r&b songs and brought him back into the States and had way bigger hits than the original versions. And a lot of times the original version of the song would fade into complete obscurity and pretty much only be known to record collectors and music geeks from that era and even today as well. You see, Go Now was one of those songs. And Go Now was a song that was first recorded by an American R&B vocalist named Bessie Banks. And it was written by her then-husband Larry Banks and her then-manager Milton Bennett. And, by the way, this version of this, that version of the song was a brill-building classic produced by none other than Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Um, I'll talk more about them in another episode of this podcast. Now, at the time, both Larry and Bessie were going through a separation that later turned into a divorce. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Go Now was written about that situation. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you think about it. And I've actually heard this version of the song, and I decided I'm going to do something a little different for you guys. I'm going to show you guys a little taste of what the original version of the song sounded like to show you, um, you know, just how similar... The original version is compared to the big hit version of the song. We've already said 
Wow, now isn't that mind-blowing to the uncanny resemblance between the hit version of the song and the original version of it? I mean, they're almost identical. The only major difference is the tempo, but that's about it. Um, you know, and it's just literally the versions are pretty much exactly the same. I mean, the intro is exactly the same and, you know, the um, you know, the vocal is exactly the same, even the piano is even there too. You know, I mean, when you listen to the full-length version of the song, you'll notice a couple of slight changes. I mean, you know, the tempo in the Moody Blues version is a lot faster than the original, but everything else is pretty much there. So there is really something to be said about that, you know, because the Moody Blues are really using uh, the original version as a template, you know, to what they would do for, you know, their cover version of the song. I mean, they weren't really changing a whole lot i mean they're adding a piano solo and speeding up the tempo and changing the melody slightly and a couple of lyrics but that's about it i mean they were really staying true to the original version of the song you know which makes sense because at that time i mean you know it was a common thing for the white british invasion bands to cover black songs you know and basically like copy them note for note and then have huge hits with them you know, I mean, that was, you know, it wasn't uncommon for things like that to happen. I mean, that was just a part of our musical history. Um, but really, a question you might have about now, if you got this far into this episode of the podcast, is how did such an obscure American R&B song from the early 60s make its way across the pond and into the hands of the British band? Good question. You see, a mem- the member of the Moody Blues that was responsible for digging the song up and convincing him to do it was a group's lead singer and guitar player, Denny Lane. You see, Denny Lane had an American friend named James Mitchell who just happened to know an American DJ named B.G. B. Mitchell Reed, and James had this huge suitcase full of American records that was shipped to him from America to England, and the original version of Go Now was in the suitcase full of records. And Denny had and and uh had convinced the other members of the band to record the song because the song had a piano in it and at the time they were mainly looking for songs that were really heavy on the piano to showcase the skills of their then keyboard player Mike Pinder. And this one just happened to be the right one to do exactly that. The song was probably recorded at Zeka Studios either in late summer, early fall of 1964, and it was released in England in November of 1964, and about two months later in America in January of 1965. And it was released in America and eventually got into the top 10 within the spring months of 1965 in America. Um, Now, when this song became a huge hit in America in 1965, most of you by now and probably think that after the song the group are going to have a big string of hits like most of the British Invasion bands were having at the time. But in reality, this is not the case for the Moody Blues. After the song became a hit, they struggled to have any more decent-sized top 40 hits. Although, to go along with the release of Go Now, their producer-slash-manager Alex Warden shot what was at the time considered a promotional video um, for the song that wasn't necessarily a live video of the band performing the song. And keep in mind, this was in 1965 before there's such a thing as MTV. At the time, 
They weren't even called music videos. And it was difficult and sometimes next to impossible to get these videos to get shown on TV. So the only way you can see these videos if you were to go basically go to a theater and sometimes they would show them before a movie would start. Or if you were uh, uh, if you were to go to a place where they where they had what was considered a music video jukebox where you would put some change in there and you'd be able to watch a few music videos at the time. These videos are called scarpatones. And keep in mind, this is way before the internet. You know, so YouTube wasn't even around at this time. But anyways, the lack of success behind uh, the, with the band initially after Go Now prompted lead singer and guitar player Danny Lane to leave the band. And if you're wondering exactly what he would wind up what would he what would wind up happening to him? Well, he would go on to play with the band that uh, he played in a couple really kind of bands that failed in the later part of the sixties. I mean, they weren't successful at all. By the next decade, he would join a band that would become one of the best-selling British bands of the seventies, along with Led Zeppelin, a band. That was led by this guy that you may or may not have heard of. Um, he's a guy named Paul McCartney. And he was in this band that you may or may not have heard of called the Beatles. Well, the name of this band that he formed with Paul McCartney in the 70s, the name of that band was called Wings. Now, before I end this week's episode of the podcast, I want to talk a little bit about how the band made its evolution from an R&B blues cover band to a psychedelic experimental pop band, and how they went from doing two-and-a-half-minute songs to super-long seven-minute-plus songs with less orchestration and sometimes difficult to understand lyrics. Okay, so after Dane Lane left the band, Clint Warwick also left the group as well to retire from the music business. So all of a sudden, the band was left without a lead singer and a bass player. And they were also in some major financial trouble with their record company. Um, to make a long story short, they owed the record company lots and lots of money since they were unable to recoup a lot of their advances that their label originally paid them when they first signed them because they were unable to score big hits. This caused a lot of issues for the band. And it was decided that they needed to go into a new direction since they could see that doing R&B blues coverage wasn't really working anymore. And they're also saying all the changes that were happening in the music and how albums and FM radio and more experimental freeform, to a certain extent, psychedelic music was starting to take shape. And so when Denny and Clint left the band, they were replaced by a guy named Justin Hayward um, and their old bass player, John Locke, came back into the band after he finished up school. And remember, John Locke was in the group when they were called El Ride and the Rebels way before they became the Moody Blues. Justin was recommended to the band by Eric Burden, and he was previously in a band called the Wilder Three, led by a, a, a big British pop star named Marty Wilde. He ultimately, ultimately became the band's principal songwriter and, and lead singer, and it was around this time that the band started production on their second album, this time going going for a completely different direction than their first album. And it all happened because, one, like I said earlier, the band was in deep financial trouble, and they almost got dropped by their label, um, by the way, and that's how big in trouble they were. I mean, they ultimately wound up 
getting signed to a subsidiary of Decker Records called Duram Records. And they were also looking to change their sound and get with the times they were in. And two, what happened was that their new label originally gave them money, aka in advance, to produce an album of classical songs to pay tribute to a classical composer. And to also showcase the new Duramic stereo systems the company recently built that were quite expensive at the time to the record buying public. And with this money, they were able to hire a full London orchestra and an arranger named Pete Knight and work with a new producer named Tony Clark. And with all this included in their initial album budget, they decided to take this opportunity to not do an album of classical clubbers, but to instead use this album as a platform to write their own songs and develop a concept album where the whole album was centered around one day from an everyday man at that time, from morning to afternoon to nighttime. Their keyboard player also recently acquired a Mellotron, and he used this keyboard to his advantage and used it all over this album. This album was called Days of Future Past, and it was released in the winter months of 1967 without the record company's initial seal of approval, and it took a long time for the album to take off in the UK. The two singles released off of it, one of them did very, fairly well in England and America in 1968, Tuesday afternoon, but the other one initially bombed in both countries and didn't chart until about four years later in 1972, Nights in White Satin. After this album, the Moody Blues all of a sudden became very mainstream, and after this, major hits followed for the group, such as Ride My Seesaw and Question, and I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. But the point I'm trying to make is that all these songs sounded completely different than their first hit, and that they, and to this day, not very many people are familiar with the material on the band's first album, and many are surprised to learn that the group that did Tuesday Afternoon and Go Now are basically the same band, just with different lead singers and a slightly different lineup. You know, but still, most of the same musicians are on both versions of the band. There, the, there were a good example of one band that had two vastly different versions of it, with one being more well-known than the other. So that includes part two of episode number 55, I'm a 60 Music Podcast, a Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool, interesting facts about, uh, you know, the Moody Blues from listening to this episode, this podcast, and you previously didn't know any of this information at all, and you learned a lot about them uh, from listening to this episode, this podcast, uh, please email me at samltwhitley at iCloud.com. Or if you're not into email and you like, uh, you know, doing, uh, getting in touch with people in other ways and you're really into Instagram and you're around my age, then please do that. Um, you can follow me and reach out to me on Instagram at iHeartOldies. And you can also check out more of my original music at SamLoneysMusic.net. Now, as I say with every show, um, things you can find related to the show in the description of this episode are one... Uh, links to the song again, you know, so that way you can listen to it again, just in case you forgot about it. And you can find the link to my uh, Redbubble merch store related to this podcast. Um, that is on there as well. Um, you can find that. 
And, you know, I would really appreciate it if you can purchase something from the store. I would love that from you. That would be awesome. You know, a friend of mine actually already got some stuff from the store. So, you know, go ahead and get something and let me know what you think of the design and send me pictures of what you got. And I would really appreciate that. And also, everything you can find in the description of this episode of this podcast is the Spotify playlist for the show. Um, that is on there as well. Um, you can check out all the songs I've done on the show so far in that Spotify playlist. And, you know, it will also give you an idea for the kind of music I talk about on the show. If you're just getting into the show and you don't really know a whole lot about 60s music and, you know, you may might want to suggest some new songs I should cover. Well, I would definitely go on that playlist and listen to the songs on there because, That'll give you an idea for the kind of music I talk about in the show. And that'll hopefully give you some ideas for what kind of songs uh, you can suggest to me as well. Um, but yeah, so anyways, so um, I'm Sam Williams. And thank you for joining me uh, for this week's episode of my podcast and listening to it. And until next week, please keep things groovy.